Welcome to Retina Health for Life from the President's Corner, brought to you by the American Society of Retina Specialists. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Murray, coming to you from Miami. On each episode, we'll bring you inspiring conversations about your sight and the special role the retina plays in making healthy vision possible. We'll hear from expert retina specialists, as well as directly from patients about living life to the fullest with retinal disease. Join us and learn how to safeguard your retina health for life. Welcome to the American Society Retina Specialists Retina Health for Life from the President's Corner. 11 million people in the United States have age-related macular degeneration, known as AMD. The number is expected to double by the year 2050. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with AMD, you likely have many questions and concerns about this often life-changing diagnosis. In addition to speaking with your retina specialist about your age-related macular degeneration diagnosis, there are many wonderful support organizations out there for people with AMD. One of those organizations is going to be discussed tonight by its chief medical officer, Dr. Joshua Malley. So Dr. Malley, your organization, Macular Degeneration Association, has been a nonprofit focused on patient education and improving care for patients with macular degeneration. Can you tell me and our audience what really brought you to begin to join in sort of that type of an outreach program? Sure. Uh, Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. And I'd like to thank the ASRS uh, for having me on the podcast. And um, yeah, you know, for me, uh, you know, coming out of training, you know, know, I did my um, residency in Albany, New York, as well as my uh, Renna Fellowship, Picture Renna Fellowship in, in Albany as well. And I really, you know, was really excited to come out and practice and uh, and I moved down to Sarasota, Florida, where I, where I currently practice um, in prior practice in, in a multi-specialty group. And for me, it, w- it was really important to go back to my core about why I got into ophthalmology and, and did retina for me. And, and really, it was all about helping patients and, you know, helping people. And I really wanted to give back to the community. And I thought, you know, I was presented with a really great opportunity to work um, with, the, with the organization called the Macular Generation Association. Um, I uh, joined them uh, in 2015 and subsequently uh, became the Retina Medical Director and have been serving that capacity uh, ever since uh, for almost four, over four years now. Um, so for me, it was just a, a, great, a great opportunity to really give back to patients and um, you know, focus on things like education, um, scientific research, and patient advocacy. So I, I think that's really key because... You know, many of of our members in the ASRS really went into this because of the passion to take care of patients with a variety of diseases, and and we hate to see our patients do poorly. And it's been a huge shift within our field, I think, over the last ten years in our ability to treat these patients. But even with the treatments we have, there's often a disconnect between what you as the, as the physician would like for your patient and what the patient would like. So from your perspective, from the association, what do you think are your most utilized services? What do patients take the most advantage of through the Macular Degeneration Association? Yeah, in, in, our, in our organization, we call it MDA for short, um, you know, certainly we, we strive, as I mentioned, three important areas, education, research, and patient advocacy. In regards to patient education, 
I think that one of the most important services that we provide is actually um, educational seminars where we, we used to actually do it in person, obviously, uh, you know, in the last year and a half or so because of COVID, we, we've actually gone to a more virtual format. But before COVID, we, we, and we're hoping to start a restart uh, when it's safe to do so, we would have large seminars in, in, in many cities across the country uh, where we used to make them, make them free events for the public to come and learn about uh, macular generation, learn about um, new treatments in a very relaxed atmosphere um, where, you know, myself would be a speaker and we had other speakers as well from our medical uh, board and so forth that would come and, and give, um, you know, a lot of didactic lectures, you know, geared towards patients, caregivers, you know, anybody interested in, in the disease state. Because, when, and what I found was actually, you know, as you know, Tim, you know, we're really busy in the office, right? We're seeing more and more patients. Uh, as much as we, we love to spend time with them and, and answer all the questions that we can, sometimes, you know, it just, it, there's just too many patients in the day and off time. And we, we just can't, uh, we're unable to answer all the questions. And I think that's, that's where there's a really unmet need is that educational aspect. And uh, that's where we hope these seminars will help to, you know, answer questions that weren't answered in the doctor's office. Uh, the other thing is we, we'd like to support any sort of research endeavors, uh, in AMD, whether that's uh, supporting individual research or, or making sure that uh, the public is aware of various research uh, initiatives that are out there just disseminating information basically about new treatments and so forth. Um, so we would try to help with, with that aspect. And finally, uh, patient advocacy. So we uh, one, one big thing that we've started uh, actually in the last uh, two years is an initiative called the AM, uh, MDA-AMD Centers of Excellence. So these are... Um, Kind of, uh, we have a cert criteria that was designed by our medical board, um, and we review uh, applying programs, and we um, uh, approve programs based. Uh, you know, and when I say programming practices, basically that uh, meet certain criteria um, that we know that are, are going to meet a certain standard um, in helping uh, patients with macular degeneration in their families. So, for example, you know, we ensure that the practices have, um, you know all the you know, medications available to them to treat AMD, what AMD, making sure they have things like OCT and fluorescing angiography capability, just kind of basic criteria um, that, you know, standard practices will meet, uh, but that, that are, you know, good practices that we know that patients can actually look up in a database to see which one is close to their area. So that, that way they feel comfortable that, you know, they know these practices that have been vetted um, and we've designated them as AMD centers of excellence. So we try to keep those, um, things for patients. And, and finally, all this is kind of on our website, um, www.macularhope.org, where we have a very robust website where we have a lot of patient resources, um, you know, such as uh, a blog, quarterly newsletter, videos on, on tips, uh, you know, with diff you know, for different eye diseases and so forth. So a really broad range. We try to give a, a really broad range of resources for patients uh, to help them get them through, the, through AMD and learn more about it. So Josh, some interesting initiatives. Um, one of the things that we try to do is to encourage our patients to understand who should be taking care of them. So you've looked to vet programs. We have really focused on um, members of the ASRS so that if a retina specialist is a member of the American Society of Retina Specialists, they have really met some significant personal criteria. And as far as I'm aware, um, within a retina specialty group, it's incredibly rare not to have the equipment or the tool set to be able to take care of those patients. 
Our major concern actually from a societal perspective is patients that are in practices maybe where they're being taken care of where a retina specialist is not the person that manages them. So it's interesting that you're thinking to go at it by looking at centers. We've really been more focused at looking at the qualifications of the doctors. And you know, it's so hard to find a good doctor. Um, I think our, our patients and their families have that difficulty. I think sometimes even physicians outside of their own specialty practice can have some difficulty with that. So we've been in a big push to, to look at really focused opportunities for people to know what minimum standards are. So I like that concept. But for us, the concept is, for me, it always comes down to who the doctor is that's taking care of you, more so than the institution or the site. And, and I'll tell you, I think you're absolutely on the money about sort of those interpersonal one-on-one -on -one discussions. Um, there's some great information out there, and it's just hard to really convey that sometimes to the patients. So there's fact sheets at the foundation for the SRS. You and I both, I think, use the National Eye Institute and the National Institute of Health. And then there are some excellent programs through Fight for Sight and Research to Prevent Blindness. Having said that, I still don't feel like we make the same connection that you and I want to have with our patients. I think both of us believe the more knowledgeable your patient is, the more vested they are in their care, the better, the better that they do. So very interesting approaches. Um, how, how do you counsel your patients when you're seeing them? I find it's kind of interesting, I'm sure for you too. We, we take care of our patients for such long periods of time now that I find my patients getting very knowledgeable over time. They'll come in and want to look at the OCT to interpret their own OCT. They want to know what the level of acuity was, what their intraocular pressure was. Do you see that also? Absolutely, Tim. I mean, you know, I, I think the level of sophistication uh, is really impressive as, as we move along here. You know, it's certainly, I agree, patients all the time ask about their OCT, are more knowledgeable about new treatments, um, you know, new medical devices, new data coming out. I mean, certainly it does depend on, you know, there's different patients, different generations, but I, I, I would say that I, I completely agree with you. I, I think that that's, that's kind of, it's, that's why it's even more, more important for us to really uh, provide that baseline education, not only for those patients that are asking the questions, but I think there's also a value to providing that education as a baseline um, so that you know, every patient has a baseline knowledge about the disease state. And I think that helps not only for the patient to understand that, but also helps compliance because then they understand why it's important they're coming in for the injection visits, why it's not a good idea to, to, to take off you know, a month uh, longer than you should on your injection visits and so forth because they, they have that kind of at least that basic understanding of that of their disease state and I think that inherently gives them that sense of the need for compliance and, and for coming in for appointments and, and following the, the instructions of, of, the, of the physician and so forth. I think all that kind of ties in, together into that basic understanding of the disease in the major risk factors, um, you know, the prognosis and what to expect and also not only that the patient itself, but also the caregiver, and making sure they're involved, whether that's a family member or, you know, a friend or a neighbor, making sure that they're also, uh, you know, involved in that too. And that's why, I, again, I think it's just so important to have the educational component involved. We try to help provide as a, as a supplement. Obviously, nothing takes the place of a, of a doctor's visit and talking with a patient one-on-one, -on -one, but certainly uh, we, we, we at MDA feel that it, it, we can provide a, help, a helpful adjunct to patients um, outside the clinic where, you know, maybe they want to just 
uh, ask some questions that they didn't have time to ask, um, you know, things like that. And that's kind of where we hope to bring some value to patients uh, and caregivers because, you know, I know sometimes it's tough. Sometimes, you, you know, you forget to ask questions, you write them down, patients write them down, they, things like that. But they, they just, it's nice to be in a relaxed forum um, where you have a, a lecture kind of talking about the disease state, but also providing question and answers uh, for them as well. So I think that's so critical. And I'll tell you where we really, at least in, in, in my practice, appreciated that is that many practices didn't allow um, caregivers to accompany their patients to the exam or the treatment. Um, and we very early on recognized that that wasn't a, a good option for, for our patients. Um, there was a very significant difference in the understanding just by having another family member or a caregiver with you in the room. And it's interesting to have another set of ears. So I love that. And I would suggest for people that do, you know, when you guys get back to having your in-person um, meetings, always good to have somebody with you that's listening with you. We, we, we sometimes hear so differently the same the same information is, is processed so differently. So I've really felt how important it is to have patients with their caregiver or their family in the room when we're talking. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. And, and I, I think our programs are now, yeah, again, not only geared to the patient, but also the caregiver. Because so, a lot of burdens, as you know, a lot of burden is, is on them, you know, with certain wet AMD patients, you know, if they're not able to drive or things like that. I mean, it's tough if they're on monthly visits or, you know, eight-week visits, things like that. Some of these, uh, the caregivers, they have either you know, work or they have other responsibilities, and you know they're they're in this with with their with their loved one, and it's and it's certainly a, a team effort and certainly a battle. And I, I think it's important to ha have them involved and, and have their their questions answered and understand why it's important to bring you know grandma to to their to clinic or grandpa, you know, or um, their, their parents or whoever it may be. But um, I think that's just so important, and it helps to keep that patient and the caregiver motivated. To continue to um, uh, you know you know maintain that uh, compliance and 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 you know maintain the best possible visual outcome. So you you know we've also been very focused on on saying that macular degeneration is not your your grandparents' macular degeneration. There have been such huge advances over the last decade, um, and I love the fact that part of what your organization does is push out the new research and new information broadly. Um, it's a very exciting month for us as we enter into the AMD month. Um, could you touch on what you think two of the major advances are for, for the patients that we take care of every day and, and what that means for the patients in your mind? Sure. I, I think the first thing is, is, is the durability aspect. Um, uh, as you know, the, the, the FDA just recently approved um, uh, the medical device Susvimo uh, for um, for wet macular degeneration, uh, which will be a nice medical device we can, you know, um, implant in patients to provide potentially six-month refills, which I think would, would be a tremendous advancement in, in our in our field. Um, and also just the recent FDA approval just this past weekend of um, uh, Bebismo, which is, which is a, a potential 16-week dosing agent um, with the combination ANG2 and anti-VEGF properties. Um, so really, really exciting from a therapeutic standpoint. Uh, with with these two uh, approvals recently, I think that'll you know make uh, you know decrease the injection bur burden that we have on patients and hopefully increase satisfaction while giving us very robust visual gains. And I think this the second major development is uh, hopefully on the um, monitoring front. Um, you know I, there's a device called the 4C Home device 
um, that I like for patients with dry AMD uh, to help to monitor patients when they convert from dry to, to the wet form of AMD and, and, it, and it finds it very quickly. And that same company is also working on a home OCT, which could be a game changer in regards to how we monitor patients um, in between intervals and, and the potential of sort of really refining the way we as retina specialists uh, approach, you know, dosing and, and our injection frequency. So I think there's a lot of excitement, as you mentioned, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of uh, great technology that we have now in our field and, and, and upcoming in the, in the near future. And certainly I think we'll be able to manage patients better, make them more satisfied, and, and give them a lot of hope for the potential in the future. And I think what we're seeing too is the ability to personalize care for our patients. So you know, a port delivery system may not be the best option for some patients. And there may be concerns with the port delivery system that are different from concerns with intravitreal injections. So that the art of the medicine with each individual patient becomes really, really interesting. And then the other thing I think you and I have both experienced is that what happens in a clinical trial is, is sometimes different from what happens for our individual patients. And part, again, of the art of medicine in macular degeneration is taking care of your patient and incorporating sort of best advances, but realizing that every patient is a little bit different. So um, we've been excited about durability of other agents, and, and we've had some issues with those, as you're aware. So it's always interesting to me um, to see how we're going to roll that out to our patients and how we have these discussions sort of in our office. And I think it's key that the patients have the educational knowledge to be able to question back and forth. I think that's part of the art of, of what you and I do every day. Yeah, absolutely. I think you nailed it, Tim. I think the, 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 the interesting thing there was that the, the fact that, yeah, again, the, the, the treatments are, are you know, very individualized for patients. And I think there's a lot of excitement when something comes out and patients ask, you know, is this for me? You know, and they always think it's for them. And, you know, again, if you look at, uh, you know, how it is, you know, again, not every treatment is going to be for every patient. And, you know, I think that it can sometimes, you know, provide a kind of roller coaster of emotions for patients. They get really excited then they get disappointed that maybe they're not a candidate. And I think that's what we try to do is we try to step in. We hopefully try to have educational seminars. We had one recently on SUSVIMO uh, to help kind of at least answer some general questions about it and make sure that, that patients know what it's all about and what it's indicated for. Again, each individual patient has their own, uh, you know, basic, uh, you know, characteristics that they may or may not be a candidate for it. But uh, as an example, but, you know, certainly I think just, just giving them the initial information that they can hopefully have some kind of baseline information when they go to their doctor they can have a more informed discussion about uh, potential treatments and, and, and things that are actually going to be applied to them. So I think you really know there it's, it's really important. That's why education is so important to help prevent that roller coaster of emotions. And, and I think you're correct. I mean, I, I think what you're really looking for is that information that allows you to ask the questions for you as an individual. And I think the more information you have from the, from the broadest sources possible, really helpful. And then that's one of the reasons we want to make sure that you're speaking to a redness specialist who really has an understanding of the disease and is actively involved in, in the treatments. But I think the take home for me is even though it's been a roller coaster for, for you and I as physicians over the last 10 years, it's been a roller coaster continuously improving the outcomes for our patients. And I think that's the biggest thing to take home for, for patients now is that you, you can have these amazingly good outcomes if you can 
be active in, in your care with your doctor. That's the biggest thing I try to try to emphasize to every one of my patients and their families. How, how do you do that in your office? So I think it's so important to do sort of a shared, um, shared decision-making model. I mean, I really like to involve the patient whenever I make decisions. I know some patients just like, you know, say, hey, doc, whatever you say goes, and, you know, I don't want any part. But I, I do at least like to offer them the opportunity to be involved in their care, to understand what treatment they're getting, what are, what are the advantages, what are the disadvantages, what are the risks and benefits, and making sure that they're on board. I say, you know, this is what I recommend medically, but what do you think? And I, I think... You know, that shared decision-making model, ensure that the patient understands, you know, what they're getting, you know, what medication they're getting, why they're getting it. And again, it goes back to that same educational point, but I, I really love the shared decision model because I think, you know, we're all in this together. It's a team approach, you know, everywhere from the, from the front front staff, check-in staff, to the technicians, to our scribes, to the doctor, um, to, to, you know, any everybody. I think it's important that we ha- all are involved and that, that we are involved in patient's care, but also that they feel like they're involved also on the team and they're, they're involved in their decision-making. You know, and one of the things that is unique in a positive and a negative way, of course, is that this is a condition that requires repetitive evaluation and often repetitive treatment. So I think we get to really know our patients very well and they get to know us. And I think that's very helpful. You touched on a few things that I think are key. I love your comment about, you know, Write your questions down. I, I find my patients often, you know, are, are there in the moment, and it's hard to remember what you want to ask. So I find that helpful. Um, I, and I and I tell them if you have a concern, I think the biggest thing that I I really um, am passionate about is when somebody's found a piece of information that's negative, like they've gone to Google, um, that they that they discuss it with us because often it's not something applying to them. So I, I, I love the fact that you've got an organization with excellent information available to the patients and the caregivers um, and the focus on how important a redness specialist is in their care. So we touched a little bit on what most of the patients that I deal with are concerned about, which is that concept of treatment burden, of having to come back over and over and over again. And you touched on two major advances that may help with that. How do you think the future is going to go forward? Do you see other advances allowing us to, to prolong intervals between treatment and establish better durability for our patients? Sure. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, the patients that are going to be listening, to this, they certainly like, well, love for me to say that there's going to be a cure, which obviously I, I would hope and I would dream for that. But I, I think at least for the foreseeable future, I, I think we're really looking at, at better treatments, um, you know, potentially you know, things like um, gene therapy, uh, stem cell therapy um, for dry MD damage. Um, I think, you know, we have potential medications in the future for, for dry or geographic atrophy, which, are, which is very exciting as well. So I think just, you know, kind of advance their technology, applying that to the retina. Um, I think that's what we're hoping to achieve is, is kind of, yeah, get more durability, um, you know, uh, potential of different mechanisms of action treatments uh, to help patients with these conditions. And, and you know, I, you never know. I, I hope one day we're able to to devise a potential of a cure. Um, I think that's hopefully uh, the aspiration of everybody. Uh, but I think at least for, for now, we're hoping for just, you know, more enhanced treatments, better patient satisfaction with this condition, and uh, the ability to just, you know, again, give patients the best possible vision for as long as possible to, just, you know, again, to, to live their life. And I think that's the most important thing. Again, at the end of the day, I always ask my patients, you know, what they like to do, what their hobbies are. 
uh, because that's important to me too. Because I, I my goal is to try to help them see better to do these activities, whether it's you know reading, driving. Um, I have patients that do a lot of artwork, so it's you know precise vision with AMDs, although a challenge, but they're able to overcome that um, and maintain vision enough well enough to to you know create the artwork. I think that's just again that's important for me to know that because I can help design regimens uh, to help to maximize that and. Again, my goal is to give them the best possible vision to accomplish those things. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how far we've come um, in a relatively short period of time, but we're, we're so poised for some major advances in things that I've been talking about for, you know, two decades. You know, you, you touched on, on gene therapy here and some of the new vector delivery systems, and you touched a little bit on dry advanced macular degeneration with those atrophic changes where stem cells or other approaches may play a role. And then the other thing I think is that we're still seeing major advances also in sort of our ability to, to functionally improve the activities of our patients. Because you and I doesn't matter what you read in the room. It matters what the world is like for you outside. So there have been some discussions about new goggles using AI interfaces to allow scotomas to be reduced. I think it's kind of amazing where we're going. I think I think that the pandemic slowed us all down a little bit in terms of some of those research activities, but I think you're going to see a real push forward over the next several years. So I'm excited about that also. Absolutely, and and for me, I'm just you know honored to to be um, the Renna Medical Director of the Macrodurian Association to provide help provide education you know education you know research and advocacy for patients and again give them that hope and and let them know that knowledge is power and I think that once they you know kind of aspire that and achieve that knowledge I mean they can do anything and I think this disease is just will be you know hey just uh, you know another disease that can be managed and I I think that having that sort of inspiration and hope is probably the key motivation factor that I, I want to give patients and I'm able to do that through this organization. Well, I, I love how passionate you are. And one of the things that, that I see, you know, from, from our colleagues across the board is that, you know, you have brilliant physicians, but they're truly passionate about taking care of their patients and, and really giving them the best. And so thank you for spending time with us to talk about the Macular Degeneration Association. Thank you for being the doctor that you are. Um, and, and we look forward to maybe talking to you again as we see some of the advances we discussed going forward. So Dr. Joshua Mallon from Sarasota, Florida, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure is mine. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Redna Health for Life from the President's Corner. You can watch and listen to more episodes on the ASRS YouTube channel and on popular podcast directories, including Apple Podcast. Google Podcast, and Spotify. For even more information about safeguarding your vision for a lifetime, visit asrs.org patients and follow ASRS on both Facebook and Twitter. Retina Health for Life is made possible in part through generous support from the Foundation of the American Society of Retina Specialists, Allergan, Genentech, Novartis, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. See you soon.